we were talking about your mother, so we could we could start there. I think it's important to have context for like she's had progressively fewer and fewer parts of her brain available to her. I think that's important to note. Hello, I'm Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend, Karin. All right, so this is a special episode for a number of reasons. One is that tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of releasing this podcast, with a total of 25 conversations and two bonus episodes. I am really grateful for everyone who has been willing to be a part of this process, whether as an interviewee, behind the scenes, or of course, as one of my listeners. I never thought anyone other than my friends would listen to this, so thank you. It is fitting then to have this episode be of a very early conversation I had in making this podcast. This was originally recorded April 5, 2022, making it the second conversation I ever recorded. It was the first time that I actually set up a time to talk with a friend and recorded the whole thing, as opposed to my first recording where I decided, with permission, to start recording in the middle of a conversation. As it is so early, there aren't any planned questions, no intro, no proper end. I had to cut a couple of things out due to confidentiality about recovery, so it does start mid-conversation. It is also recorded on my phone, meaning that the sound is not good enough for you to listen to while in a car, which I know is true of some of my other episodes as well. I'm so thankful that Karin was willing to sit down with me when I had so little experience and no proper setup. I also hadn't developed any way of preparing my participants for the interview process and to be properly aware that this was not anonymous. The reason I haven't released this episode before is in large part because I hadn't fully prepared Karin, and they were not yet ready to have this episode released due to anxiety about how their words could affect the lives of their family members. I am glad for my rules about consent because it means that this episode is being released with Karin's full understanding and consent. While a bit chaotic, this is one of the interviews I am most proud of and grateful for. We talk about incredibly difficult subjects, such as generational and sexual trauma, yet Karin is able to talk eloquently and with surprising empathy and groundedness. I will be re-interviewing Karin this month, and I plan on releasing that episode in January. That way you will be able to learn more about how we know each other and who they are. For now, I'll give you the short version, which is that we met through a mutual friend and had just started becoming friends when we did this interview. It is also important to know that we both have experience working in community mental health. Content warning for talk about self-harm and emotional, physical, religious, and sexual abuse, as well as rape. Also talk about genital disease and damage and a mention of BDSM. I also recognize that hearing two trans folk talk about Harry Potter may be difficult for some. Also spoilers for Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, Harry Potter, and a very Potter musical. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, 
so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here is my interview with Karin. Yeah, I'm... Right now I'm just thinking about... You were studying to do this thing that involves your body and someone else's body. And, you know, for some people that is, like that can be this very connected experience between these two people and sort of the massage therapist, you know, feeling out things with the other person with all of this stuff going on, not to mention everything that you grew up with. How did that work for you? <laughs> Which part? The, 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 like doing massages. You know, that is a good, good question. Um, I hate getting massage. It's gotten worse, not better. Um, because I've had a couple of trainings where people have just been incompetent. Um, and not paying attention to my body and have injured me. That's a bone, not a muscle. You do know after 30 years of practice, the difference? Question mark? Again, it's that process of like, surely I'm crazy for thinking that after 30 years of massage practice, you don't know the difference between a bone and a trapezius muscle. So I'm just going to... I'm going to let you know the first couple of times, but then when you proceed to work on a bone, I'm just going to magic a reason for why you're continuing to work on my clavicle? <laughs> why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I think it's just complicated. Like, I feel like I could tease out individual pieces of it, but it's just really fucking complicated. Mm-hmm. I am not currently practicing massage. Uh, the last and final straw, I think, for me, for the time being, was... I, I mean, I think being in massage school was extremely helpful for me because the program I went to was an extraordinarily good program. And I think it both articulated ethics and boundaries and sort of practical skills around being a person in a therapeutic space that therapy mm. school didn't, that mm. it should have. Mm. And so I feel like I learned more about being a good community mental health therapist in massage school than I did in graduate school in a lot of ways. And so I I do think it was the right choice for a program for me. I also learned a lot about how to connect with my body because I had no idea. And so I I learned a lot and I I would say that you know it was uncomfortable for me to get massage in massage massage school but it was never unsafe and it was never harmful and so I do think that was a really it was the beginning of a healing space for me to learn how to be in that kind of relationship with other people Mm. it's also good for me to feel what I was feeling in my body and also feel what I could feel in other people's body because I think there's an emphasis on palpation that's more concrete and then helped me sort of abstract that to my therapeutic mind Mm. Uh, and also just palpation is really fucking important. Can you describe what you mean by that? So palpation is the act of like touching someone's body and feeling what's okay. going on there. Um, it also taught me about energetic work and introduced me to energies in a more concrete and systemic fashion, which I think is, again, super important in psychotherapy. No one talks about that bullshit. 
I want to hear all about that bullshit. Which bullshit? The energies. I mean, it started with when I went, so my massage school had like a weekend intro class and it started with this crusty older lady who always says the darndest shit where you you can't say that shit. (laughs) Shit is not appropriate. But you know that she just has no clue and she's just like that older white lady. She was an athletic trainer, primarily in the context of football and athletics in the fucking 60s. 50s like before it was okay to be a woman who was an athletic trainer in a male's football locker room um so she was pretty fucking crusty uh but she was like you might not believe in energy but i tell you you stick someone's head in your solar plexus long enough whether you believe in it or not it'll get to you (laughs) i was like okay um but yeah i mean we we had reiki training we had energetics training we had uh and borderline, we had reflexology training. Um, and so it was just interesting. I, I still don't know that I would consider, I mean, we had people, there are those people, they drive me a little bit crazy. They're like, oh, I sense everything. But I think it was helpful for me to get some sort of practice. It also, I think, was really helpful. I met with a Reiki practitioner for the first time after our Reiki teacher told me that my energy was fucked. It's like, kind of thing is that. I am the type of person people say wildly inappropriate things to. So at this point, it's like, for the most part, stopped phasing me. And I was just like, I'm just going to translate in that my brain to like, wow, I should really probably be responsible and like do something about my energy. <laughs> it's probably extremely treatable. But the way you're choosing to phrase that is like, wow, that's fucked up. Thanks. So that was really helpful. I felt more grounded than I've ever felt mm-hmm. in my life meeting with a Reiki practitioner who like mm-hmm. was able to do something, which I felt like enough connected to in my experience and in the experience of my story, that I was like, oh, this was helpful. Like, she's like, oh yeah, there's just this like massive pulsating tubes that goes from your solar plexus out, I'm mm-hmm. guessing, to my mother. Um, and mm-hmm. then also like the energy. So when she first met with me, all of these chakras were completely stagnant. So head to midsection. Head to midsection were stagnant. So your third eye, your throat, which is your voice and your agency, your heart chakra. So my solar plexus, these were stagnant. This one... So solar plexus is like your abdomen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then that one was running in reverse. It was extremely parasitic. And then this, and it was pulling all of its energy out of my sacral chakra, which was feeding all of its energy into that. I was like... What does sacral mean? Is that like part of your... Sacrum. Sacrum. one. Okay. I mixed it up with cranial for a second. <laughs> I was like, I was about to say skull, and I was like, nope, 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 nope. sacrum. I wag your little tail. It's <laughs> your grounder. So all of my grounding energy was feeding up into what little energy that my solar plexus could put out that wasn't being leached off by these sort of parasitic things. So she reversed that chakra, tried to clear away some of the attachments, and then got all of the other chakras. And I, I whatever it was. Whether it was that or something else, I don't know. It felt noticeably different. Mm. I felt like I could ground and like, I mean, there's also this concept of energetic shielding that was introduced, Mm. which, you know, again, depending on the system that you're thinking of, just some idea that like there is a emotional or energetic barrier and or like there is a point at which your energetic and or emotional energy ends and that other person begins and it's okay to leave that person's other stuff with them and not just constantly sort of be taking that on and mixing Mm. that as your own and it's just been a very helpful framework for me to be like 
right. I The more whole and intact I am as a person, the less other people's shit, even though it's mm. completely ordinary shit, can, like, you know, it's like having an open wound is what I imagine. Like, you know, yeah, ordinarily useful skin bacteria is just creeping in there and creating all sorts of chaos. Like, close that shit. Put some mm. fucking ointment on it and, like, don't walk around with that on. Yeah. I just think boundaries, you know. Boundaries. Um, so, yeah. I, I mean, really, I feel like it was the basis where I started being able to have a language and uh, an awareness of, like, ah, there's, a, there's supposed to be boundaries here. <laughs> you should look to that. So when you started talking about your solar plexus, yes, mm-hmm. and there being looked sort of like radiating <laughs> energy from that, you immediately said, because of my mother. How do those things connect to each other? I am guessing, and or what I was told, and sounds plausible to me, is that there was a pi- energetic pipeline between the majority of the energy from my solar plexus probably feeding into my mother and also feeding both ways. So effectively, I was, she was still parasitically feel, feeding off of me, which, you know, I have no idea if I think that's actually like true on a sort of physical, concrete level. But I will say, as I've become an adult and been able to separate, obviously, from my family and from my mother, like, there's just a degree to which my experience of the world and my experience of day to day was so impacted by her ghost and or energy, you know, Mm -hmm. potentially things she'd said in the past or did in the past or, you know, honestly, I would not believe even left me open for like a day-to-day sort of like she was feeling some type of way like I was still so reactively tied to that Um, and whether it's because of that work or because of probably a multiplicity of other things like I do feel like in the last three years especially like there's just finally some like you are you that is your shit you can deal with it it does not I do not need to be feeling some type of way about that every second of every day Go over there and stay over there. Thank you. It it sort of looked like to me, and sounds like to me, like a reverse umbilical cord situation. Oh yeah, no, that's exactly what I feel like I'm imagining. Or I don't know if you've ever seen Full Metal Alchemist. If you have not, you should. I should. I've watched like the first couple episodes. How does this connect? Fast forward a lot. I don't think I'm giving away too much, but one of the, the like, King Homunculus mm-hmm. is, like, tube-fed, and he has, like, all these, like, tubes mm-hmm. and wired. But it, it reminded me of, of the sort of, when when they said that, that part of what they're exploring in Fullmetal Alchemist is you have these homunculi that pop up, and eventually what they learn is that every time a human trespasses the taboo of alchemy so tries to do human transportation transmutation Mm -hmm. and you end up at this gate which is symbolically drawn as like it's it's a kabbalistic tree it's actually really really intricate and really Mm -hmm. cool um has like all a bunch of names of god and like different religious Mm -hmm. traditions so you talk to this and then this sort of gatekeeper demands a fee and for for the main brother it was his Mm -hmm. right leg and left arm left arm and any whatever opposite limbs 
Um, but then what they've learned throughout the series is that that exchange then creates a homunculus mm-hmm. who exists in the world with whatever body parts you've given up. But it's still living kind of a half-life. And so, again, part of the like underlying plot of this manga is that these homunculi are scheming just like Ed and Allard have spent the entire series searching for the rest of their bodies. Like this homunculus is also drawn to kind of search for the rest of its body, but it's this kind of mm. parasitic eater. And then they have this king homunculus who's like, you know, the ultimate parasite. But that's what mm. it reminded me of. I'm going to continue with that. But first I want to ask, you say Kabbalistic Kabbal- Kabbalistic tree. Um, what is Kabbalistic? Jewish mysticism. Kabbalah. Okay. I I was thinking, I was like, this sounds Jewish, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, Jewish mysticism. How does it, does it have anything to do with the tree? <laughs> well, so roughly there, I mean, it's a massive field of philosophical and religious thought, but roughly there's a signif- iconic significance of the tree of life from Genesis okay. being sort of imagery for the root of God. There's some imagery about, you know, the way that God is connected to the world. There are many depictions of this in art, but mm. it's a it's a Kabbalistic tree that Philadelphia depicts. Okay, I, I I will look into that. I'm curious. So yeah, th- this is how you feel about how you felt about your relationship with your mother. Yeah, it certainly felt like a true. I mean, I don't know if it was like the way I acted actively felt, but when that was reflected to me, I was like, oh no, that seems extremely true with my experience. Hmm. Yeah, and since then. I mean, I don't know that I would say like the day and the hour that these interventions happen, but I have noticed in that like sort of space and time. I mean, the other thing being that, you know, my mom almost died and we effectively said our goodbyes and I haven't really had any meaningful meaningful contact with her since. So all of this was sort of happening. I mean, it's been, this is the most space that I've ever had for my parents in the last five years. I mean, I've seen them a couple of times at like family functions, but yeah. like, some of this also very well could just be like time and space too, but yeah. Overall, it seems emblematic of like no, there's a, a finishing of that and distancing of myself from that chapter. Yeah. How long ago did she almost die? Two thousand fifteen. Seven years. Okay. Yeah, it was my first summer after my first year in grad school. Okay. Yeah, I. There's all these different fun directions I could go. Um. Or at least fun for me. Uh, not unfun for me. <laughs> I mean, again, benefit of distance is like, you know, I know right. I have to talk about many of these things like I'm fucking in it. It's like, thank God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole different feeling. Yeah, it really is. Well, you said before, like, an open wound. Yeah. It's just, oh, yeah, let me just, like, rip this open for you and I'm going to bleed all over you. Pretty much. That's not... <laughs> Healthy friend. No, I... Put your insides back inside. Yeah, I'd be like, okay, Karen, let's, <laughs> let's stitch this up a little bit and you can wait a couple of years. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, are you okay talking about yeah. your family stuff? Okay. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, if you want to talk about bodies, I don't feel like I, I can talk about my relationship with my body without talking Absolutely. about my family, unfortunately. Yeah, so where do you want to start? We were, we were talking about your mother, so we could, we could start there. 
Maybe ask a few more questions. That's still a massive. Okay, massive that's level. a massive like. Okay. I mean, you've heard a few stories, I'm sure, that yeah. raise eyebrows. She's a very special woman. Okay. Yeah. Let me think of, you know, things that I already am aware of. Hmm. Actually, I'll, I'll start at a bit of an interesting place. And you've already talked to me about this, but I, I'd like to hear it again. Because we were talking about Kabbalistic. Um, could you talk about your mother and Judaism? Yes. She, and you know, it's so interesting because so much of this has, I mean, I was so starting with you, I think it's important to have context for like, she's had progressively fewer and fewer parts of her brain available to her as her life has progressed. <laughs> I think that's important to note because I, I feel like in talking about this and assigning it a story, we're assigning it a narrative and a logic. And I'm not convinced that there was always that. She's definitely existed in spaces of psychosis, although mm -hmm. I don't think she would ever meet criteria for sort of, well, not ever. Consistently, she does not meet criteria for classic psychosis. But. I'm just gonna clarify right here that you, you work in community mental health with a lot of people who have psychosis, and it sounds like you grew up with some of it too. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. Um, but, and, and so, you know, in, narrating her religious system there's a logic that i feel like i'm assigning to it that i don't necessarily believe was there for her so yeah she i think it's fair to her to say she grew up in an extremely toxic household my grandfather so she was adopted my grandparents adopted two girls to this day i'm not sure i convinced they ever had sex with each other which is bizarre uh yeah they slept in separate bedrooms. As far as my mom knows, they've never touched each other. Like in theory, they got married for some reason. But if you were ever to tell me that they didn't have sex with them, each other, I'd be like, yeah, I, I could easily believe that. So they adopted two girls. I'm, I'm actually confused right now. So they adopted two girls. And then you start talking about like, and, you know, it sounds like they didn't have sex with each other. And I was thinking, well, that wasn't my go-to for this interaction. So what what is the... So my grandfather is a pedophile. He was Oh, a... your grandfather, not the two sisters yeah, with yeah, each other. Yeah, that My grandfather, yes. As far as I know, my grandparents never had sex with each other. My grandmother meets criteria for borderline personality disorder and is solidly cluster B, like without having a diagnostic and everything. It's just so obvious. My grandfather, according to my mom, meets criteria for, who also has clinical training. Uh, meets criteria. Your grandfather for... has clinical training. No, my mother has clinical training. Sorry. Your mother has clinical training. Yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. My grandfather apparently meets criteria for obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Okay. And is a pedophile. He was a children's librarian by training. Uh, and I would not be surprised if he adopted those girls for the sole purpose of molesting them. Okay. So when you were saying never had sex with each other you mean your grandparents with yes. each other yes and then but your grandfather did with your mother and her sister i can't for sure say my aunt i actually can't for sure say my mother another convoluted answer well my dad's therapist who was meeting with us disclosed a tidbit of information it's not at all surprising to me and i 100 percent think it's true but my mother has never told me that hmm. 
So she grew up horrific existence. Her lifeline to that was her grandmother, her mom, her mom's mom, and the Chronicles of Narnia books. And then she had a sort of unofficial foster family, just like I did. Mm-hmm. I'm actually just texting with my aunt yesterday because she's been reconnecting with me since my mom's thing. Um, but she survived by reading Chronicles of Narnia and then starting to go to church and spending as much time as humanly possible with her sister. So your mother would spend as much time as possible with her sister, your aunt. Yeah, well, not her biological sister, but this friend that she had adopted, whose family she had adopted. She's a lesbian, (laughs) Uh, which I found out when my mom got very angry at me for not being (laughs) like my aunt because I'm not a lesbian. I was like, oh, that's good information. So, wait a minute, she was mad at you for not being like her? She she was mad at me because she thought I was a lesbian. She was telling me that I wasn't like my aunt. Okay. Very little con. So my aunt's on state disability because she cut the tendons in her arms by cutting too deeply. Mm. And has been my entire life. Okay. Also recently found out. I was like, the fuck? Uh, But, so, my mom survived horrific existence with religion and then when she went to college she with joined Christian the, religion yes Christian religion um and yes, she went, sorry I just want to okay. clarify so she had a horrible experience with Christian religion no she had a really good one okay it was her kind of so she had a, she had a horrible existence mm-hmm. she survived through Christian religion um which included yeah. Chronicles of Narnia yeah okay yeah so she joined university in college. As far as I can tell, the church that she grew up in was fairly liberal. University is not liberal, per se. A lot of the campus chapters are typically theologically most reflective of the campuses they're on, not mm-hmm. on sort of Ivy proper. But then after she graduated, she supported my dad through med school. She also got her master's in education which involved her starting to work in child life in the hospitals mm-hmm. and doing failure to thrive evals with infants and other young children and doing play therapy mm-hmm. with young children in the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. My dad's residency took them to Nebraska and there was something that happened for my mom in leaving California. She did not want to leave California is sort of what the family grapevine has told me since. Mm -hmm. And she was pregnant with my brother and then something, and she's referenced once to me as like a 14 year old uh, article that I've since looked up called Ghosts in the Nursery, which is within the psychoanalytic little school of thought, but it's talking about women who postpartum sort of have experiences of abuse that become so real to them that they can't bond with their children. I think she might've been hospitalized at that time, but something shifted once my family moved to Nebraska when I was two. They had joined a church there. And then when I was five, my dad got a fellowship in St. Louis. So we moved again to St. Louis and my parents identified the cult that I was a part of there as sort of, they were, their language was they were going to be missionaries and they were going to be twofold missionaries. I remember this being pitched to me as a child. And I was like, mm. I don't even know what this word means. Like, what does this mean? And we were going to be missionaries to the city. And we were part of a homeschool group there, but then we were also going to be missionaries to this church, which was very unhealthy. But my mom really liked that it had a significant intellectual component because I think she had, she was 
and in some ways still is an extremely bright woman mm-hmm. who I think always felt very held back in Christian settings from exercising her full intellectual capacity. Mm-hmm. And so we moved to St. Louis. We started going to this church and this cult was a blend of Christianity and Judaism. And so we kind of lingered around that. And then, so I remember first being exposed to Hebrew and Hebrew Jewish traditions. We had, we celebrated Passover. Mm. Um, I vividly remember learning Dayenu for the first time, which is one of the like catchiest Passover songs. It's like super upbeat mm. and performing that when I was very young. And then I, she got involved in, so the St. Louis schools got unaccredited when I was a kid. The federal government said, you guys suck so badly. We're not even going to honor the decrees that you give. Happened in St. Louis, happened in Missouri, Kansas, Missouri side of Kansas City. So all of this is very quick, and so I'm, I'm missing things. What what school was unaccredited? Was, um... All St. Louis public schools All St. Louis were unaccredited when I was a kid. Okay. So my mom got involved. There were lots of little startup schools that popped up then as sort of a save the poor kids, like save our children, get them an education. My mom's an educator. She got involved in starting the school. I also had turned 11 at this point and put my foot down. My mom's idea was that she was going to homeschool all of us all the way through and she had six kids by this point. Mm-hmm. She was, and she'd also gotten involved in some educational stuff at church. Somewhere in there, she read this book that written I don't even remember it read it for school but basically it was like some equivalent of like unlocking the New Testament from a like a more Jewish perspective of like mm. talking about some of the motifs in the Old Testament and I think that was the first time I noticed that she just started she really attached to that and it started for her like she had gotten started in this like Bible study program that she had used to do Anyway, at some point in between the time when we moved to St. Louis when I was six and the time when I was 11 and started going to the school, she had just sort of increasingly become more scholarly and focused on the Old Testament. And my mom was also a little bit of a hoarder. Her parents were both capital H hoarders. So she started collecting a lot of things for like Jewish educational Mm -hmm. activities. And so I think, and then when I was 11, she started actively having seizures again. And so at some point it sort of went off the deep end, although I'm a little bit fuzzy as to when now I'm realizing, where she, I think, would have switched from identifying. And she would, I think, I think she would still identify as Christian. But I couldn't tell you the last time that she read the New Testament. She mostly focuses on the Torah. She also doesn't speak Hebrew, which is fascinating. She can recite the alphabet badly in a very confusing way, which she then, when she's at her worst, insists that you do as well, but there's no, like, oh, no one said, I don't know how you want me to say this. No one says this this way, and it'll change too. It's fascinating. Um, and so as she lost more and more kind of capacity to think in a coherent fashion, the pieces that have stuck have been Judaism from a Christian perspective is probably the best way I can stick onto it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so fascinating. So that's my mom and Judaism. Mm
Yeah, I... There's not even enough of a coherent system for her, I think. I think I thought I could give it more of a synopsis than I could give it. The, but it, it, it became just so incoherent. And so she's also extremely rigid in her thinking, which is yeah. very... And, and very concrete now. Just She also probably has the beginnings of dementia now. And by the beginnings, I mean, like, the far beginnings and almost the middle. Yeah. I... Yeah, as you were talking about that, I just really felt for her. Yeah. And, and I, I felt like... Because at the, the very beginning, you, you wanted to make it clear that she has these... All these experiences that explain, you know explain the other parts of this story that you're going to tell and it feels like you've, you've collected data like you've collected information yeah. about this person who's affected you so much who has hurt you so much but also gave you this big part of like your um, religious experience and yeah there's just a lot of care there and i it's nice when someone becomes a full human, right? Yeah. Well, I, I will say, I mean, I've had many, many people who have behaved in a horrible manner towards me and, you know, quote unquote, many abusers. But, you know, even as a young child, it was just always so clear to me that she was responding to something else. Yeah. Be that internal stimuli, be that PTSD flashbacks, be that, like... Just and I think even if you, I mean, other people have met her and, and said that they've had the same impression. Like, like she's just so trapped, and like it doesn't excuse her from her actions, but I think more so than most, given that she's neurologically compromised as part of this. Like she just almost—it's almost like she doesn't stand a chance. Like, of course you're behaving in this manner, and of course you should choose differently. But you know, one, she clearly did so much better than where she came from. Mm-hmm. And two, I was just like, dear sweet Jesus, there was no way you were going to win in this. I don't think you needed to go to the lengths that you did, but there was no way you were coming out of this ahead. So at some point, part of me has empathy for just like, well, go big or go home. Fuck it. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I do wonder, like, what, you know, what was it about leaving California that affected her as much as it did? Yeah. You know, it sounds like you've tried to get that information and you've just sort of gotten scraps. I mean, the problem is she was at that point completely surrounded by my dad's parents who are about as emotionally literate as bricks. Although my grandmother is getting, is warming up and I might eventually get some pieces, but primarily the telling of this has been by my grandfather and my dad who mm. are just sort of, yeah, I just want to like smack them with a brick and be like, <laughs> okay, so you literally broke a person in this move. Good job. Did you like do something in response to that? Other than be like, wow, bitch is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of moving moving from a place that's important to you and it not being your choice, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, for both my moms and for so many women of their generation, especially women who are in any way, shape, or form in the orbit of the conservative movement. Like, my mom very quickly, especially, I remember there being a shift of some sort. I couldn't tell you what it was, but I remember there being a shift when we moved to St. Louis where 
there was just so much emphasis on sort of women's roles and like very traditional childbearing roles. And like, you know, if you talk to my mother on her worst days, all of us but my brother Alex were mistakes and or she didn't want us. And she, I mean, she was pregnant with me when my dad was in med school and apparently it was an accident. It's like, you both work in the medical profession. At some point after you have five kids, maybe you should fucking figure it out. <laughs> but yeah. regardless, you know, she's young. She's saddled with more kids than she can handle. Her husband is absent and, you know, expecting her to quote unquote run the household. And the same thing happened to my foster mom, although I think my foster dad was a little bit more responsive. And, you know, it just, it didn't give them a chance to finish developing as people and figuring out what their wants and needs are. And then they spent the next... 20 years, both my foster mom and my mom spent the next 20 years sort of, I think, feeling like they sacrificed themselves to service of family, which was what was expected of them. Like, there wasn't really another option. And I think both of them in their own ways were kind of vocal about trying to find other options, but, I mean, they just weren't there. And so I, I feel like I also just have some compassion about, like, you were trying to fit in this box that you... On some level, I mean, my mom in particular, I think, had less of an excuse. My foster mom grew up in middle buttfuck nowhere, Indiana. <laughs> um, I mean, she was like 16, I think, when she met my dad, and he was 22, and they were both working at McDonald's. Like, and her dad was an alcoholic and not a good person. And, you know, she was the youngest of four girls, and she needed to get the fuck out of there now. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I think she had a lot more agency and retained a lot more agency than my mom, but, you know, both of them just kind of didn't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's real. I mean, again, my mom, I mean, my foster mom did not choose to behave in the way that my mom did. Yeah. But I think there's an understanding that happens for me there. Yeah. So it's not an easy life. No. Yeah. My mom had less of an excuse, too, because she went to for her graduate degree. And I was like... I think also something happened. Either she fell in love. I think she, I think actually now, all I know is that she felt traumatized by the liberal lesbians. Mm. Also, now that I've processed enough of my own experiences sexually with my mom, which clearly it's own conversation, um, I, I think my mom might have fallen in love with a woman while she was there. Mm. And I think... That probably was just so beyond either internally not being okay or externally not being okay or some combination of the both that I think it just, she fled. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your mom is Jewish. Were the people who adopted her Jewish? No. So she's not ethnic. Jewish. She's, she's not ethnic. She, I, I, the best way I can describe her to people is, is a convert now. She's, of course, never set foot in a synagogue. And, you know, okay. who the fuck knows what her conglomerations of beliefs are. But, you know, on some level, if she was able to give you a coherent answer, I think she would find herself represented in Jewish thought. Unfortunately, okay. she's so far beyond being able to give a coherent answer now that I'm kind of speaking for her at this point and trying to just put labels on something to summarize to give people a sense of what my experience is. But okay. yeah. So my mom my mom would probably identify as messianic. Would probably messianic convert would be okay. probably her. So speaker. She is not ethnically Jewish. She also identifies as black. She is not black. Okay. 
Is there a reason? Her stated reason is that she feels like... So, another thing to know about my mom. Do you know... Vaguely. They went to the same high school. I... It's so vague that... Cool. Has some horrific stories about the school that he grew up in. Okay. My mom went to the high school. My grandfather was children's librarian at that school. Um, although he was in the elementary... In that district, I should say. I don't think he was in the building. Um, but it was an inner city high school and sort of the worst of inner city high schools heyday. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a shit that they make horrible movies about white savior people coming in and rescuing the poor brown children. Um, but my, she also grew up as a minority. And so I think she was the only white kid in her class. Mm-hmm. And she would say she identifies with the sufferings of black people so therefore she's black which mm. is so fucking twisted sounds a bit rachel delazo i don't remember well she never bothered to pass right like like there was a lot of like investment and like yeah and it, i didn't even know until like literally my sister just saw my mom check a box one day when i was like i think i graduated from college she was like she called me she's like did you know mom identifies as black and i was like come again mm. Um, yeah, so, you know. But there, there was something going on there. There's something, experience. I would say it's probably the beginnings of a psychotic process. Like, there's mm-hmm. some lack of reality in the, the claiming of labels that I think surpasses the, like, appropriation and, and starts leveling onto the, like, so you're Jewish and you're black. And, uh, all right, what, what are we doing here? You know the first thing I thought of was your mom suffered a lot growing up and it sounds like that's the thing that she is connecting. Yes. With. Yes. And she, I would say the, 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 what has remained for her through all of the confusion has been that she is a person who has suffered greatly and she, she can identify that she experiences it on a minute to minute basis. And mm. it, often informs the way that she feels like people around her should be interacting with her or not. Yeah. All right. We've talked a lot about your your mom and her experience of things. You and your experience of your mom. Oh, Lord have mercy. I mean, she was my entire world until... Pretty well, I was 11 because we were a conservative homeschool family and I had, by the time I was 11, I had five younger brothers and sisters. When I was in junior high, we picked another one who was 13. Um, so she was two years younger than me. So she didn't, she got towards the top of the pecking order. Um, but my mom was determined to keep us all at home. She was determined that our only friends would be our siblings. Very quickly became not true because there were a few families that we routinely hung out with and sort of did the child swapping thing with. Mm-hmm. And as she would say, she sort of staged a grand psychological experiment with us. Hmm. She will often claim to have manipulated variables like an experiment. Um, hmm. Like, for example, she'll tell you. I don't know if she'd still tell you, but at one point she was telling me about how she wanted us to be friends with each other. So she like sounded like manipulated our environment so that we were ultra isolated and forced to bond with each other. Um, and now it's quite angry that our bond doesn't include her, 
well, bitch, you can't have your twisted experiment and not have it at the same time. Um, I mean, she had psychological training and yeah. so, and she participated in the attachment studies. Um, okay. Ruth Mary Ainsworth was very interesting because she sort of blended and, and this is where, again, some of the like whispers of psychotic process, I think, started coming in pretty quickly because she kind of blended James Dobson's idea of breaking strong-willed children with the sort of attachment-based, like she, she is a baby whisperer. Like she can, she can articulate to you, this baby is doing this, therefore you should do this. Yeah. And I, I think all of us were fairly well cared for as infants, but then she struggles pretty significantly. She also may legitimately be on the autism spectrum. Um, people, I haven't seen it, but practitioners who have seen her have told me that they feel like she's probably somewhere on the spectrum, as as has my aunt, her her adopted, her chosen sister, let's call her that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, because she can read kids' cues, she used that to form kind of a brainwashing system. Like, if she was angry at you, she would require proximity and eye contact, which means she'd be, like, yelling at you full force, so you'd pull back. But then she'd require you to lock eye contact, mm-hmm. but then also do the thing that, you know, many people do when they're behaving in a way that's badly. They don't want to see that reflected in someone's face back at them. So then, mm-hmm. like, if you started crying or emotionally responding to that, she would either escalate or tell you that the thing never happened. Mm-hmm. And so... I think my experience of her was just so, so shaped by her for 11 years that I'm not sure I had an experience of her. Like, mm. like it was just no, there was nothing to compare her to. Um, like by the time I was 11, I was actively self-harming. I had tried to commit suicide multiple times. I, again, without any, like, I had no exposure. I wasn't allowed to go to school. Like I had no exposure to the outside world except for our homeschool mm. group. And so... Like, I felt trapped and locked and knew that something, I don't even know if I could have articulated that something, I knew I was bad. And then I had the experience of going to this school because I, under what magic circumstances, I don't know, had this moment where I just remember, I've lost my shit like two, maybe three times in my life with my parents. And I, I had that, so she, we were homeschooled. She wasn't teaching us. My, we had sunlight curriculum. Oh yeah. I would just get sent to the basement with the sunlight curriculum and that was school. And I very quickly figured out that the sunlight curriculum has the answers included in the teacher's manual, which my mom (laughs) didn't think to take out. And also I would just have sacks and math for math, which also had the answers so that the teacher can correct your math book in the back of the book. So I literally just like, (laughs) my schoolwork for like three years of my life was just copying answers. Of course I felt extremely guilty about this, but I also like had no capacity to do anything else. So I had this moment when I confessed to my mom that I had been cheating on school for like three years, everything I had done. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done school in three years. And I also just had this meltdown moment where I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Like Mm -hmm. you have to send me to school. But you weren't being taught. Well, I mean, I don't even think I had that articulation though, because no one I knew was being taught. Like you had a book and everybody else did their work. I cheated on my work because I was stupid or deficient or morally depraved or who knows and I do remember my mom very calmly saying that she would have to inform my school that I was not an honest person and telling me that I that she how did she phrase it 
she would look forward to the day when I came to her complaining about how terrible school was because I was going to hate it. But she would send me, goddammit, because I was incorrigible and basically she, she knew that she couldn't continue existing in the sp same space as me either because she was such a or because I, I was such a terrible person. It's 11. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I was like, okay. And I remember in the, my mind, I just formed this resolution. I was like, bitch, you will never see me <laughs> have a day when I don't want to go to school. Mm. Thankfully, that never occurred. <laughs> I loved school. The other time that I lost my shit was there was a day when I was so sick. So sick. I had an autoimmune disease in junior high and high school, my body started uh, ulcerating, mm. started getting genital ulcers. And I would run really high fevers and no one could figure out why. Um, and so I, it was the first time that this happened, I'd gone to the hospital because I'd been bitten by a brown recluse spider seven times as a 12 year old. Uh, so I was in the hospital for a Ooh. month. Uh, and I, the first time I got these genital ulcers, I thought I'd been bitten again. <laughs> I was like, well, fuck, can't not do anything about this. <clears throat> so that, for, so, it sounds like, is it genital or general? Genital. Genital. Um, ulcers. ulcers. I've never heard of those before. Yeah, me neither. Haven't heard of them since either. <laughs> Bitch. Basically, there were just ulcers all over my vulva. Oh. It was so excruciating. So I had, as like a 15-year, 14-year-old? 14-year-old, I developed these and like had, you know, immediately gone to my parents and was like, I think I got bit by a spider again. So I spent a day missing school for the first time in my entire school career since I was 11, going to the hospital with my dad and getting these looked at because everyone was like, and I was running a fever and, you know, clearly had some, in fact, something. Yeah. No one ever figured out what it was. It would happen repeatedly. Uh, so they just labeled it an autoimmune disease and gave me a shit ton of Tylenol with codeine and steroids. Why? Did you just hand these out like candy? Um, but the next day after that, I was on, you know, codeine and steroids for the umpteenth time in my life. Yeah. And my mom was like, why don't you stay home from school? And I think she was genuinely trying to be supportive. Oh. And so other backstory, while I was in the hospital as a 12 year old with spider bites, I was raped by a man in a lab coat. Um, and so I, after that, without being able to articulate that this was something bad that had happened, developed an extreme phobia of ever having anyone touch me, you know, all of the classic symptoms of sexual mm -hmm. abuse. And so to have worked myself up into what I decided was sudden death to go back to a hospital, have doctors look at my body, have everyone parade through the room, et cetera, et cetera, was extremely trying. I had decided that I was probably going to die. And then when I decided that I didn't have the guts to kill myself, that I was like, okay, I can do this for a day. And then I'm going to go back and see my friends. And my mom tried to keep me home from school. And I, again, just like lost my goddamn shit. And again, she, for some reason, it was like, she was just so shocked that like this child that she had cowed into compliance, she was just like, okay. And then I threw up in the hallway at like 10 o'clock because I hadn't taken my steroids and my food in the right order. And I threw up in my hand in the hallway and made it to the toilet. And then my mom came to pick my sister up at noon and was like, do you want to go home now? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. And we never said anything more about it after that. Hmm. We never missed a day of school because I was like, hell yes. Um, so yeah, I think it was going to school that finally gave me a perspective, started to give me a perspective on who my mom was. She also started molesting me some point when I, after I went to school. Um, I had no language around what was happening. And I think it was probably not until college when I, my 
afford a stupid sheltered cell, went and saw a play that was part of the mandatory college orientation that everyone else in the room knew was about date rape. And of course, my little conservative ass, who didn't even know what being gay was, really, mm. walked into the auditorium, which is a fascinating experience to like have actors. And I like, I we really, I mean, we'd done Shakespeare in a week, but I'd never seen like other than like outdoor theater. I'd never seen like mm-hmm. really good theater. We had actors like acting out this rape that was coming out, and then you know we had uh, there were of course you know the the frat bros in the audience were like, do it, keep going, do it. And everyone else was kind of like sitting docilely by and was like, all right. And I was like, I think some bad shit has happened. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, so I think, I mean, I think the rest of my time as an adult has been spent realizing and figuring out that my mom is maybe not a great person mm-hmm. and processing that some really fucked up shit happened. But I, I think my experience of my mom growing up was just that she was a force to be reckoned with. Like, I don't even know that I would have labeled her a negative force because I just had no concept. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very long and rambling answer, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot. Um, I knew part of it, but yeah, just the, you were raped by your mother. You were raped by a doctor. You had ulcers on your vulva. And you didn't have words to sort of describe what you had experienced. You just knew that there was fear, it sounds like. With the doctor, at least. you. Yeah, I could actually, well, and I mean, I started to get a tiny bit of language after I met. So I would, I would also farm myself out to families, you know, because there was a tradition. I don't actually know if you know, but there was kind of a tradition of older children were expected to look after younger children. And so in this sort of colonial prairie style, like it's not uncommon that like, if you helped out with the younger kids, you could kind of slide into families, spend the night, be a mother's helper. Like it was just sort of done. So like there were definitely families whose kids were, who had kids my age, but also had younger children that I would, I would try to spend as much time as possible. Like I had some sense of wanting to get away and of being, I don't, I didn't, I didn't have emotional language, but of some sense of like, I don't like where I'm at. I'm trying to get away. not get away. I wouldn't have ever had that language, but some sense of like, I was trying to stay out of the house as much as possible because I felt nicer with other people. And I did get some language around what happened with my foster mom and my foster sister. <laughs> my foster mom just had this look when I would say things like, like, for example, we'd be standing at the wall because there was a wall that they built in front of the, the front desk at the office. My mom was the admin, my foster mom was the administrative assistant at our school after my sister started attending. And we would hang out on the wall and my sister would say things like, you know, oh, I'm so ugly. Like, oh, I fucking hate how I look. My mom would be like, oh, hon, you look fine. You look beautiful. It's great. You're lovely. And my sister was like, ugh, it doesn't count when you say it, because you have to say it. You're my mom. And I would look at her without missing a beat, because I'm so fucking clueless. I'd be like, no, not every mom says that. My mom says I'm ugly. And my mom would just look at me and be like, oh, child. Mm. She'd be like, you are both beautiful. Go back to class. <laughs> mm. um, so I started to get a little bit of language around, around what was happening, um, and also around the, the way that my foster mom sort of hooked me in or my experience of being like, yeah, I'm down with this bitch. I think she might be in my corner and I'm kind of into it. <laughs> so we had a conversation where 
I don't know. We were talking about something rather inane, but you know, we were high school girls, so something had upset us, I'm sure. And my mom basically said something like, if, like asked us if we had asked an authority figure a question because we were feeling like this person had distressed us. And I was like, no, we just obeyed. And she was like, you know, it's almost always all right if someone is hurting you. So one, tell somebody about it, but two, like ask them a question and let them know like, hey, this is hurting me. Can we talk about why we need to do this? And she's like, they might not be able to talk to you right then, but like there should always be a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I was just flabbergasted. I was like, wait, wait. So let me like, if anything they do is hurting us to anybody, <laughs> yeah. yes, kid. Yes. Is there something you want to tell me? Yeah. So you were saying earlier, like you said a couple of times now, like feeling the need to not be at home. Yeah. And the first time you said that was when you demanded to go to school. Yeah. Which sounds like it was before your mom began to rape you. Yes. But not before bad shit was was still going down. Bad shit was still going down. Lots <laughs> like, of bad shit was still going down. Um, so you, you were aware of like, I need to be somewhere else. Yes. As much as I can. Yes. And then you start going to school at, you were 11. Yes. 12, yeah. This is sixth grade. Sixth grade. Um, so right out of elementary school. Technically. Yeah, technically it was middle school. Middle school. Yeah, well, I mean, sixth grade is the beginning of middle school according to some yeah um it was k through 12 in our school so and there okay. were 40 of us in the whole school when i started so yeah i mean to one up that our school was 11 people <laughs> yeah so. like, you know i was in middle school whatever the fuck whatever that means. whatever the fuck that when so you were 12 and you were raped by a doctor and then stuff with your mother before or after after that i couldn't after tell that. you exactly when but after that. Okay. So by the point that your mother started to do this to you, you had already had this experience before. Yes. And likely, I suspect that I had some experience as a young child that I just haven't. Yeah. They're probably somewhere at this point. I'm over it because I was like, yeah, bad shit happened. We don't need to go dig it up. Yeah. Just going to deal with the present. Uh, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. Like. No. No. This this abuse did not come did not just sort of start randomly at no. one time. Um, I I'm gonna ask uh, what could be a difficult question. Um, so the first time that you remember that you had a sexually abusive experience was when you had ulcers in that area, right? Well, and this is where I often interrogate myself. We don't need to get, like, really detailed. No, that's okay. I'm just, I'm curious about, like, like, genuinely, I think the first time that I registered that there was a sexual experience that I was having in the moment, well, no, I would, I, I would have told you all of the times that I didn't enjoy what was going on. Like, I didn't, I was like, I'm not into this. Right. So, I, I mean, I didn't realize that as I had said as a child, something bad happened to me until 
was trading journals with my foster sister because we did that. And I had a dream about what had happened in the hospital. And at the same time, my foster mom had gotten speak because it had been on Oprah, which is a story about a girl who's raped in high school and then doesn't mm. talk for a year. And I had selective mutism as a child. Uh, and that happened in the same week. And my sister very calmly was like, you were molested. That's what this is. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And then I read this book and I was like, yeah, yeah, that. That thing. That thing. And that was, I think, the first time I was like, oh, that was like an actual bad thing that happened. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The question I was going to ask is, so you experienced these these things that, you know, were not your choice and were definitely often painful. Was there ever any experiences where it was not painful or that it was something that was at all In the context enjoyable? of these experiences? In the context of these experiences. And I want to say again, you don't actually have to answer any of these questions. I, I appreciate that. No, okay. I, I actually am enjoying this and I feel like I've done enough work. I was like, no, it's also nice to be like, I can have these conversations now. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the end of the world. That's also nice. Um, I will say something that came out of my mouth when I was talking to my therapist about my mom and I, I would say, I mean, definitely what happened in the hospital was just, I have three first degree tears, if you know what that means. Um, no. So no. during childbirth and recovery, there are degrees that women can tear. Okay. And their first through third, first being the most mild, where there's only a couple of layers of tissue. It's, I forget what the second, third being the tissue tears completely and you actually go into the rectal cavity. Um, so I have three first degree tears from what happened at the hospital. So there was nothing at all comfortable about what happened there. Um, that the, you had to have taken care of. No, they just took care of themselves. I had no idea what was going oh, on. Oh, okay. Um, I just know I have them now. It's like, yeah. oh, well, that's what that is. Okay. Um, I've since, yeah. because of massage school, actually, at the end of massage school, I, re- I met a woman who was talking about doing pelvic floor work, and in particular, I was never able to sit up straight comfortably after mm-hmm. that experience. So from the time I was 12 onwards, and would frequently have times when my pelvic floor would convulse and twist and just be excruciatingly painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was talking about being doing pelvic floor work, but also sort of gently picking on the way. I mean, I used to sit, I'd have to sit kind of like this to be comfortable because I couldn't get any sort of angle on my pelvis. To sort of slouch down. Yeah, and really what was important is that my pelvis not be rotated like this because it was too, my pelvic floor was already too yep. tight and so seize it out. Uh, and so after massage school I started seeing her and she very quickly was able to do some scar work and release my pelvic floor for the first time Um, also led to a certain amount of incontinence which is always fun Mm. um and it's been fine ever since so kudos to massage school um it's amazingly life-changing in that respect that's incredible I I keep being surprised by like the the things that can be done using massage skills and, and 
skills that are similar to massage or like in the same family? It's amazing. Because I mean, my assumption was always that one, nothing could be done with it. Or two, that anything that could be done with it, like my friend who has some really severe, she actually developed a fistula in Canada mm. after giving birth to her son, had done some work with like dildos and like a, the, the physiotherapist who was trained to work with women postpartum. That she was recommending and it just sounded so horrifically invasive that i was like i have no desire to ever take my clothes off in that way for another practitioner again mm -hmm. ever end of story and she was like well think about it um but yeah massage is amazing clothes stay on it's amazing the, well, your clothes were on yeah she true. works over clothes so i mean she works well relationship she works in underwear and bra Okay. I effectively just wear my bathing suit because I'm as a swimmer and it's really comfortable for me. And I was like, yeah, I'm just wearing my swimsuit. So yeah, um, I I'm curious about that because I have chronic genital pain um, and a lot of like tightness and mm -hmm. like pelvic issues, and so I've actually been looking for someone who does that. So I I literally never thought I would trust another thing. I mean. She does tend to be a talker. <laughs> Definitely started to have conversations with her about like police brutality while her hand is like in my pelvic yeah, no. floor. And I was like, these two things can't happen at the same time. <laughs> no. um, but I literally never thought that I would trust another person that much to do that kind of work. And I mean, we've certainly built up to it. Like we didn't start there. But I mean, within a session, I was able to sit, which was life changing. I mean, I'm a fucking therapist. Um, yeah. I was able to sit without pain. Yeah. It was remarkable. Yeah, so I'd highly recommend working with her. Yeah, I, really yeah when you're talking about the sitting thing, I, I remember when my pain was at the most acute time. Number one, pants were the devil, even though I love pants and I hate skirts and anything like that. But, like, I bought a, a skirt that I would wear. Yeah, no, I routinely wore dresses and skirts because the pain was just at a level where I was like, oh, this is a lot more comfortable. And so I just kind of lived in the dresses and skirts and leggings because yeah. it felt more comfortable. Yeah, so sitting was just terrible. Yeah, I'm definitely doing that, like, yeah. you know, making sure that there is no, the least amount of pressure in that area when you're sitting yeah. or wanting to stand more, wanting to yeah move more. So um, that was definitely not not at all a pleasant experience and no. th the reason that i ask the question is that oh yeah do you want me to actually finish answering the question? yeah actually yeah <laughs> let's let's continue on to that um so i will say in the experiences that i had with my mom when i was reflecting starting to reflect on that with my therapist a couple of years ago for the first time i will say in those moments with her it was the most sort of gentle and grounded was my reflection he was like that is something i have never heard from somebody before and he was like say more and i couldn't but as i've continued to reflect over it in the next couple of years i was like was there a component that was enjoyable like what, what was going on here there was so i mean my mom would be extreme i mean she also has a penchant for strangling people right she could be extremely violent she also will just like sometimes lose her shit and like punching kid usually my brothers not so much me um and so one I think what was happening was so felt in the moment like so tame compared to like having the shit beat out of you or like mm -hmm. not being able to breathe that I was like oh this is what you want to do next at the same time there was a level of horror in me because I was old enough to at least know that like this is 
really fucking weird. And also in the moment, especially the first time it happened, I was like, oh, this feels like what happened in the hospital. I didn't like that. Like, I'm, I'm really not into what's happening now. Yeah. Um, but I do think that after, after she had perpetrated, she also had a routine of liking to sit down with me and, you know, tell, tell me that she loved me and like, you know, yeah. have a sort of repair routine. There was a lot that I needed to do too in terms of reassuring her that everything was okay and that I understood. And, and so, and, and this was all under the, under the guise of discipline. It would usually start with spanking ostensibly. Um, yeah. And so I do think that there was an, ex, a, there were times when, you know, of course no one can ever ask for these things, but there were times when I would permit myself to be in situations. Cause I was also for the most, most of the time while I was experiencing these things, I was also actively living with my foster family and not supposed to be one-on-one with my mom if I could help it. So you were already, you had already moved out of... I mean, moved out is a relative term. Okay. I had some shit there, some shit here. It's also because my mom couldn't drive, I was responsible for driving. I mean, it was just very complicated. Like, I never like moved out, but I mean, I was doing everything humanly possible. I was pretty fucking clever yeah. to stay out of the house. And I also was supposed to have my sister around when I was with my mom because she wouldn't be violent in front of another person. And so there were all these measures that were supposed to be in place that were supposed to reduce the amount. And there were times when I'd actively circumvent them and be like, I don't know if it was a kind of like, no, I got this. Like, see if I can handle this thing. Or, or I think there were also some some moments of like, there was a an intensity to the connection that I had with her through those experiences that felt different, mm. interesting. I'm not really sure still, but there was, it was different than the other sort of one-off experiences that I could point to. Right. So. Yeah. 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 So it would it would be this disciplinary experience where there would be hitting, and then being raped, and then comfort. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't like the first two things, but you did have some amount of comfort from the last thing? I mean, comfort is the wrong word, but I think, I mean, I think the best I can conceptualize it is being a child who grew up effectively starved for any sort of attention or, I mean, I also grew up as effectively one of 10 kids, if you include my actual foster siblings through that family, like, and I think that there was just, when you're that starving as a child, like it was, it was more of an experience of like, huh, I haven't chewed on this before. Wonder if I can get anything from this. So I I wouldn't even say like in that moment that I felt like I certainly didn't feel comforted. I was very aware that I was fucking with a live wire, literally. Mm. Um, I was like, wow, I stepped wrong on this. I could be dead. Cool. Mm. Um, But I think there was just some, I mean, I really think it was desperation and just, you know, all right, well, what we did before really wasn't helpful but I haven't chewed on it this yet so and and I think that there was there was an emotional intensity to the experience because I think before mm-hmm. I was also horribly depressed and very dissociated but like I think also in that sort of almost I mean almost not unlike an addiction of like like it felt yeah. kind of like a hit of like wow I think that was really unpleasant but like it was it was something and it registered so like yeah let's keep checking it out. Like maybe there's something here. Like it doesn't seem like there would be anything here. Probably there's not, but like, I don't know, let's do that again. Like, yeah. Yeah. That actually, you know, after I said the word comfort, 
I mean, it was like, that's not the right word. And I think more of like this, it's not a connection, but like it's this, but it is a it's, connection. Yeah, it's, it's human, a really negative one, but it's a connection. What I mean is, like, when I think of connection, I tend to think of, like, people, like, actually, like, um, being... I was thinking, I guess, of, like, both physical and, like, emotional connection. And in this mm. case, it was, like, this... Yeah, contact. Like, um, there, yeah, being this, this physical connection, there being this, oh, like... You're you're touching me and you're yeah you're being with me yeah you're giving me attention which I really want because I have all these siblings or even if you didn't but like you're paying attention to me mm-hmm. and you're not strangling me right now and that's that's great. I can breathe so winning <laughs> I can breathe and you're not hitting me or doing other things to me it's right not even now particularly painful at this moment so hot dog yeah and I. I just totally, when you were saying this sort of addictive element to it, I, I just, I, I connect with that and I recognize that feeling. Yeah, because there were absolutely circumstances where I could have potentially avoided these situations or, you know, maybe egged a situation on farther than I sort of objectively needed to. Like, I was very good at walking these lines and kind of, dir- I mean, Obviously, I got burned sometimes, but for the most part, like, this was not a cognitively grounded, insane woman like most people. Like, I was pretty good at directing the flow and into, I mean, I had 16 years of this, or 14 years, or mm. however many years. And so, yeah, there were definitely times where I was like, and it was, I would never say I wanted it, but also there were definitely times when I would kind of go out of my way to maybe provoke it or see if it would happen. There was also a little bit of a relationship of like, there was definitely a dynamic of sort of her knowing that she had violated something in me um, Mm. and an enjoyment that was then present in sort of, she spent a lot of time trying to to break me and failing and or also I think feeling like I had just shut her out and that would make her very angry. But my sort of defense was like, bitch, you can't get in. And we both knew that she had gotten in there. And so Mm. I think also for me, there was a little bit of like, I'm going to show you, like, you, you got in once, but I'm going to show you that I can do mm. this again and again and again, and you can't fucking get to me. Um, which drove yeah. me nuts. And was extremely unhealthy. Uh, since dynamics are. But I... Yeah, no, I, I can... I can... Like, I, I, I hear that, and I think of... I, I am going to beat you one day at this game. I'm going to beat you at your own game. I'm going to beat you at your own game. And that's what's sort of giving me some mm-hmm. purpose right now mm-hmm. is that one of these times I'm going to win. Which is I also think we're kind of circling all the way back to that connection I was talking about with that umbilical cord. Like, yeah. I think that that was a large part of the dynamic that I was potentially feeding into of like, I am just going to devote all available energy to beating you at your own game because it's then this traumatic hurdle of like mm-hmm. somebody said to me once and I don't remember who it is that like whenever there's trauma there's a commitment that this will never happen again but mm-hmm. this is never what you think it will be because you would think logically that it would be like oh this trauma is never going to happen again but it's it's never the trauma it's right. always some piece of it and for me I think it was the like 
you're never going to beat me. And so I'm going to put myself in all of these horrifically compromised situations to prove to you that this is never going to happen again. Yeah. And that just needs to stop. Yeah, but I think there is this desire in in humans, maybe it's not all humans, but um, this desire to fix what is broken. Oh, absolutely. And and do it just over and over again until it's fixed or or wanting to do it until it's fixed. Uh, You know, I remember being in a meeting, one of my early meetings, and someone else said, in our addiction, we re-traumatize ourselves over and over again. Like we're playing out our traumatic experiences. And I think that's something that has been, was probably the most useful thing that I learned in all of this was when, when you're thinking about sexual experiences or when you're thinking just about like, like experiences of addiction, what is it that you're trying to solve? Like, what is the thing that you keep trying to make it work this time? Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, for me as someone who, you know, who has a disciplinary fetish in my experience, like all of this sounds familiar, of the mm-hmm. idea of, but it's going to work this time. And, and in my case, it's, well, if I, if I go through this cycle, in the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a good person, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to succeed in that. And for you, this experience was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't. But, I mean, there's no winning those situations. Yeah. <laughs> You can break yourself over and over again to prove a point, but you're still broken. Yeah. Does that at all relate to your own addiction? Oh, absolutely. Have I shared with you? So I would say I have a process addiction to self injury. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would absolutely say that's part of the energy behind. Like, I will destroy myself before you can destroy me first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that primarily because, I mean, my first memory of interacting with my body as a child is we had these plastic forks that were like razor sharp on the end. Like you could, you could like draw blood with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were these like Pepto-Bismol pink plastic forks. And I remember deciding that because I was a bad person that I needed to be in pain. And I was maybe three, four and so I would wear them on my underwear mm. and, and draw blood. Um, mm. And so I think that somewhere very early on in my experience and throughout my growing up years, I, the only way I could relate to my body was in pain. And obviously as I grew and sort of had more of a mind about it, I would use pain to shape and support the experiences that I wanted. But yeah. I think it was a very, very, very long time before I had an experience of myself as an embodied person that I was not one of pain and suffering. Yeah. Which, which makes me think of your mom and that she is so, like something that she, it sounds like she talked about a lot or talks about a lot is the idea that she has experienced suffering or that she suffers. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it sounds like you took a bit of that. I think she spent a lot of time giving it to me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for forever, I've always been. And and myself and the brother that I'm going hiking with, actually, I think definitely my... So I'm also the spitting image of my mother. Mm. Like, you would not... You would have... Our hair was different. Hers is more coarse and wavy. Um, but you would not be able to tell us apart. Like, it's yeah. it's striking. Um, and so she spent a lot of time putting her pain back into me. And, and to this day, like, the mm-hmm. reason that I don't speak to her... One, because it's a really fucking good decision. <laughs> but also because in her continued cognitive decline, if I'm present, she wants to murder me. And it's mm. hilarious. I mean, it was that zombie walk that I'm doing now. Um, but it's just, I was like, that can't be healthy. No. <laughs> For anyone involved. Also, she's so cognitively compromised at this point that, like, I, I don't want to I don't know that she experiences happiness. I don't. Because on some level, happiness is a choice that she's not making. Uh, and so it just, I was like, there's nothing more that can come of this relationship other mm-hmm. than harm yeah. to me as a thinking, cognizant person. And or real bodily harm if she, I mean, before she kind of lost capacity to control her motor movements. I mean, there was... Oh, yeah. Could you describe that a little bit? Because we were talking about last night. Yeah, that's right. No. Uh, before she lost control of her motor movements, she was, I restrained her like four times that summer. And yeah. I mean, I've been trained in nonviolently restrained people, and I did so without ever having a thought of harming her, which I was quite surprised by, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm quite pleased with. But yeah, no, she was just, now she just twitches at you. <laughs> she just literally can't. But she just sort of lifts her her hands a little bit. Yeah, so like, I mean, she'll just do that thing. Where try she, to like, strangle you can tell her. that the thought comes into her brain. You can tell yeah. she's angry and she'll like express anger. But and like her fingers will even lift and she'll like zombie. And she'll even like get up a little bit and wander around. But like she can't keep all of those like thoughts in her brain at the same time. Yeah. Or she's like horrifying and hilarious. Horrifying, hilarious. Um, That's so sad. Yeah. It's like, what is this existence? Like, literally, the only thing you have left in this existence is your hatred of me, yourself, whatever the fuck it is. But, I mean, it's... I think she would be at peace dead. She's also... She is the... I've never seen a human being so terrified of death. She is Mm. terrified of dying. Mm. I was like, wow. Okay. I think she's gonna live forever. That thought is horrifying. To me. Yeah, that like I feel this, you know, element of amusement, of you know, of of laughter at at her inability to strangle you anymore, uh, and and your other family members, uh, and like a sense of you know serves her right, and but then yeah, also that. And like sadness, and just the idea of her living forever. It sounds it sounds like a great cruelty mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And do you think she feels or has felt guilt? I have no idea. I mean, honestly, what I what I think about in this moment when I'm thinking about her is. Harry Potter. There's a point at which they discover that the antidote to Horcruxes is remorse. Oh yeah. And oh. I really do think for her that the antidote to all of this would be remorse and or maybe guilt question mark. Mm. 
And I think it would kill her. I mean, I think it, what she's doing is killing her, but I mean, I honestly, I see her not unlike Voldemort. Yeah. They have a lot of similar characteristics. Voldemort's way clever. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, you know, and far more suave with people. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think she and Voldemort have a lot in common. And she decided that it was far less worth her own learning. She would, she would far rather sac- sacrifice the innocent and others to her pain than she would ever have the courage to face it herself. So I, I love the very Harry Potter musicals with great... Which I've never seen. Okay, so Star Kid, like, parody Harry Potter stuff, um, accident, accidental viral video, and then an organization created out of it. So in the... The first, a very Potter musical, the Horcruxes have been destroyed and Voldemort is dead, but he, his, his spirit has sort of come back and he's... Isn't that the point of killing the Horcruxes so that it couldn't do that? Well, this is, it, this has its own, I don't know, it's, it's a parody. They Fair. can do whatever they want. Real. Um, but anyway, in this version, he and Quirrell fall in love. Uh, anyway, there's this whole thing. Okay. He comes to to Pearl and he says, to the, "This in relation to your mom." Uh, Loving it. Are we ever better? You, you think when you'll kill people that it'll make them like you, but it just makes them dead. And I love it's that so much. And it's a wonderful line. It's 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 humorous, but so true. But so true. And so that's what I think of when I think of your mom is this sort of desperate need to connect with Mm -hmm. you, which is what you were getting Mm -hmm. and wanting, but only being able to do that in a destructive way and self-destructive way because you can't help but destroy yourself when you're destroying someone else. Yeah. That is absolutely true. And I think like Voldemort, you know, I think, I think, I think I'm not making this up. I think that there's an exchange where somebody asks Dumbledore if he hates Voldemort. Mm. And, or maybe it's just Dumbledore tells Voldemort, I pity you, Tom. And I think it's when they're fighting in the movies. Mm. I don't remember if it's in the book, but like, like genuinely, like people ask me if I hate her. And like, you know, there are times when when I'm experiencing the things that I experience, like there's anger that comes from that experience, but for her, it's like, I just, she's a pitiable human being. Doesn't excuse what she's done. Doesn't make me any more excited about having an active relationship with her because I don't think she has the capacity to have a healthy relationship anymore. But I do pity her. I think she lives a miserable, miserable existence. If... I'm going to do sort of like a, a weird version, I think, of the miracle question. Okay. Are you familiar with the miracle question? I am familiar. I'm also okay. really terrible at answering it because I usually just get a blank look and I'm like, eh. I'm, I'm doing it, going to do a more specific version of it. But like, if you could have an interaction or a conversation with your mom that is what you want, like, what would that be? I think at this point, 
I don't know that I have an imagination for that because I feel like going home and caring for her when she was quote unquote dying mm. was my goodbye. And she started yelling at me because the baseball game was on or maybe I didn't know the baseball game. It was just like so like inane and non sequitur. And I was like, damn, I just wanted to say goodbye. Like I'm going to be leaving tomorrow. And she's just so upset about this baseball game. Mm. And it just seemed so picturesque and emblematic that I was like, no. Like I remember as we were having the interaction, I was just like, this is a good ending. Like it's a good, it's a good ending spot just feels right so I think I don't feel like I have loose threads with her which is Mm. I'm happy with it that way like I I obviously know that I have work continued work to do in my own story as relates to her but it's my work in my story right and that feels very right right now and maybe that'll change in the future but yeah I mean at some point like I will say though, as an asterisk, if I, if we were both dead and in, you know, the afterlife or something, and like sitting down and having a conversation where she was restored to her best self, and I was also able to be my best self, and you know, we were past the point where anything could happen between us, it would be, I would be very curious to hear her life story, but not her life story as entrenched by like her own preconceptions now, mm. like in a sort of like objective having been through like, like, Oh, this is like what really happened. Like, yeah. like almost like a behind the scenes, like editor's commentary of like, Oh, well the character thinks this is going on, but like, this is what's actually happening. Um, yeah. I, I would just be curious. I'd be curious. Cause I, I suspect that she has just as many crazy stories as I do. And I suspect that she's never told most of them. When you were talking about the, you know, well, this is a good end. I was just thinking, yeah, it's it's fairly characteristic of your relationship. Yeah. Uh, without the violent part. Yeah. Um, of you attempting to reach out and connect with her, mm-hmm. and her not knowing what to do with that. And not just understand. not recognizing that it was happening. Right. Well, not recognizing it. Yeah. Like she, she doesn't know what to do with it because she doesn't know what's happening. She doesn't know what that is. No. And, and unlike other times, you not sort of continuing to push it and try to yeah. get to that place. But yeah. And, and genuinely, I will say too, I mean, my sense of connection to her as my mother is very interesting. Like, again, these like things that you experience, I experience in the moment sometimes are quite shocking to me, but like, like the first time that she sexually assaulted me, like in that moment, we had kind of this face off moment. And I just remember as we crossed that line, like just having the sense of like, you are not my mom. Like you, you just lost that role. Mm. Um, and, and truly, since that day, like, I, and I also think that there was a time, there was just a way in which that dynamic ended that day where she stopped being my mom and started being something else. Um, and, you know, of course, I had interactions with her and connections, but, like, genuinely speaking, I would, I would say if I'm connected to a woman as my mother, I feel far more strongly connected to my foster mom than I do my biological mom. And, like, 
if I feel like I have things that I'd like want to work towards a relationship or resolve around, like it would all be towards my foster mom. Like yeah. that role of hers ended. I was like, yeah, we both just know that you went too far here. So yeah. we just need to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Which was almost freeing in its own right. Like I think I'd been lo- so locked in a struggle before that for her approval and for some sort of sanity or logic or system and like there was also I think a sense of freedom and like this is just fucked like it it was it was I think ultimately liberating yeah and at least for me I just sad that that is the place that you needed to go to with her and by that I mean for you to um, regain some amount of healthy like healthiness yeah that is what you needed to say of like yeah this is not this is not a thing it's not a thing anymore and genuinely this is where I also would say very quickly that I think with a neurologically well person that could have been a very different boundary. But I think the other caveat with her is she is not well on a very physiological level. And so I think there are just things that are possible with other situations that are just not possible in this scenario. saying yesterday about my like nightmare of being Harry Potter <laughs> and I had a nightmare last night that I was Hermione <laughs> so it just it seems it just to be seems a theme 